welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. Everybody, we are talking, uh, Carrie and I are talking with Samuel Kim, who uh, comes from a Korean-American missionary family and uh, grew up as a missionary's uh, kid, uh, Asian-American, uh, Korean-American, and now he is a marriage and family therapist. Uh, he earned his MS in marriage and family therapy from Fuller's School of Psychology, and he graduated from Wheaton College with a BA in psychology, and he is now a therapist. He works at Oak and Stone Therapy, where he sees individual and couple clients struggling with depression, anxiety, trauma, and relational conflict. So we are so grateful for you to be here, Samuel, so that we can hear more of your story. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Tell us a story of... You know, you t you talked about the, the heaviness of, of being in China and seeing the uh, extreme poverty in some places. Tell us, tell us another story, whether whether it's uplifting or or saddening, that uh, that is in your memory from your growing up as a missionary's kid. Um, I would say one set of memories, um, positive. I would say. But most part. Um, one of my friends, their parents, they run an organization. And my friends and I, every two months or so, we would go over um, and play games with the kids, tell them that they were loved and show them that they were loved. You know, I, I you know, as a, you know, my parents, you know, long-term missionaries, my brothers and I, so many of my friends also MKs, missionary kids, we're so tired of seeing all these short-term missionaries come in, tell these kids, you're loved, leave and never come back. Um, that does not feel like love to me. And so my friends, you know, we, it was completely led by, you know, this group of youths. Um, we would go every two months to the same orphanage, meeting some of the same kids, playing games with them, showing them. We're trying to show, at least consistently, that you are loved, you are cared for, you are seen. And again, that 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 was a glimpse of what I what I saw that the church could be a consistent form of of, of love and self sacrifice. Was there issues with the way that we did things? Yes, of course. Um, but that was one. Did your seminary or your um, or your your journey through Wheaton and Fuller? Did they contribute at all to your deconstruction i because i know for me seminary pretty much like that was the and and my fate not one of my favorite uh sound bites from seminary was one of my professors who said 
you know, once you deconstruct, keep going, which was very good. You know, she, she was trying to say, don't just stop at a big mess on the floor, keep going and rebuild your faith into, into something that works for you. How did, how, how did your education contribute or not contribute to your deconstruction? Um, definitely contributed, um, through conversations with friends, with things that I was learning from my professors. I very much do have experienced both at Fuller as well as at Wheaton. Uh, what I tend to be a divide between like the students and some, some professors as well, as well as like the larger administration. Um, so definitely like with, within my groups of friends or with certain professors, I would do a bit of deconstructing and then I would see the, look over to the other side, see the administration and be like, that does not feel right. So there was a bit of both, I guess. So let me bounce this off, off you, Samuel. Um, when I hear the word deconstruction used by theologians, generally it is used by people who, at least in my experience, who have attended uh, white seminaries. I don't, you know, people who, who, who are, who attend, uh, particularly black, I'm not familiar with the, the divinity schools of other ethnicities, but people who have attended black divinity schools, I, I don't hear that word. I often, I hear the word decolonization. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, uh, if there's something different there. Um, I certainly hear both in my circles. I've, uh, led groups for specific Asian American, uh, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals want to process through the hurts that they've experienced in the um, evangelical context, whether it be the white evangelical context and or the Asian American evangelical context. And certainly deconstruction, decolonization, these are all uh, terms that we use um, in in our conversations. I I heard... uh... In one of my conversations last week uh, at the convention, I thought this was so refreshing. Um, a, a white woman said to me, "You decolonize, we uncolonize." <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm still unpacking that, but I think she was onto something. Um, that I'm very careful. Oh, I'm sorry, David. I thought you were done. No, you go. You go. Well, sorry. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm very careful about using the term decolonize, especially the white bodied person. Um, as I was working on a, a project, a writing project with a partner who was, is, um, a biracial black man. And he point, we had, we had both been using the term decolonize, uh, to talk about decolonizing our faith. And he pointed out that an indigenous friend, had pointed out to him that we should be very careful about who gets to use that term and how how it's used because the decolonization or or decolonizing really has a very specific um, it, it points to a very specific experience of certain people groups and and those of us who are are white you're right we have to uncolonize more than decolonize and so as a white bodied person I try to be really careful about how I use that term personally. And so the, yeah, I get that. And, and, and so the, the question that, uh, that comes up, uh, for me is that is there something, you know, I don't know if it's a concentric circle or if there's a nexus here or what, but is there, is there, 
are we addressing different things? And, you know, I'm thinking of specifically as an Asian American, are, are we talking about something different when you say deconstruction? Do you see a difference there? Yeah. Between deconstruction and decolonization? Could, could you clarify that question again? Uh, perhaps, or just deconstruction and, and, and distinguishing it from what uh, a, a white theologian might be thinking. Um, I mean, probably yes and no. Um, I think when thinking of decolonization, right, we have to start with the, the Black and Indigenous experience. That's just like, you have to start there or else like, you know, don't know what you're talking about, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what? if we're talking about decolonization, then we're also thinking about you know, white supremacy as a whole. And that's certainly something that um, all, you know, people of color um, do experience that are affected by and certainly things that you know i have seen in various asian american contexts uh so even as there is that decolonization there i i do also think that there is a deconstruction uh, in terms of some of the specific um, ideas or narratives uh, that come into play in the asian american uh, christian context that we may not necessarily see in the same way in terms of even you know, what you have told what would you prescribe, if I may be so bold, for your parents? <laughs> That's a big question. What would I prescribe for my parents? Could you clarify that question? Um, would you say that the influence uh, in their lives is something that needs deconstruction? Uh, let me just back up a second. I mm -hmm. have often heard, um, you know, people who are dear to me and some of them who have been or will be guests on, on this podcast, uh, who are white talk about how painful the process was, you know, like, uh, you know, a bucket of ice water in their faces and, you know, and, 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 but, but not so abrupt, but ongoingly for some period of time. Whereas when I hear BIPOC people talk about it, it's exhilarating. It's like, Give me more right away now. And so with, with, with your parents uh, having adopted a basically Western theology, I wonder if there, what of this is, it needs to be, if at all, deconstructed and what needs to be decolonized. Um, th that's, yeah, it's a difficult question for me because I, Frankly, you know, I talked about that radical hope. I it's difficult for me to see something different in terms of like what my parents might believe or what process of deconstruction or decolonization that they might go through. I think so much of their perspective of God is so colonized; it's, it's just become very much entangled with that. So. Um, it's difficult for me to think of it's specifically my mom decolonizing without completely deconstructing everything else. I, you know, I think that it, it makes sense that it, it's so hard to answer that question because I mean, this is something that I teach when I, when I'm teaching other white people is that whiteness is designed to be invisible and it's very, especially to white people and it's very invisible in 
white Christianity. It's not like there's a scripture that says, you know, white Jesus said this. And, you know, it's not, you can't find a justification for whiteness in scripture. What you can find are people using scripture to justify whiteness. And that's a very different and a very subtle thing. I can look as a woman, I can look at scripture and go, oh, I'm going to deconstruct the hell out of this passage. I'm going to deconstruct the hell out of the way the concubine was treated and chopped mm-hmm. up and sent to millions of different places, right? I'm going to deconstruct that. I'm going to deconstruct Hagar. I'm going to deconstruct like all, you know, um, uh, Sarah, Sarai, right? I'm going to deconstruct all that. But I can't, it's much harder to go in and say, how is my Western white identity at play in my faith and the way I, I use scripture, which, and, th- and in order to do that, you have to understand the way Western white identity operates, the individualistic nature, the Protestant work ethic, the, the values of whiteness. You have to understand those before you can see them at play in your own lens through which you view scripture, right? So it's a really- It's almost like being a fish in the ocean. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like you have to be aware of these things and they're hard to point to. They're not concrete. They're not concrete. So I can imagine that for your mom who is swimming in that same ocean, it's really hard for her to separate the, the constructs of whiteness because they don't have a big neon sign that says, hey, this is a construct of whiteness. You know, this is just the way things are, right? Yeah, that's that's very yeah accurate. Again, I can't envision my mom trying to decolonize her faith without then deconstructing everything else about it. She's one of those people who believes like you know the the universe had to be created in six days; otherwise, the entire rest of scripture is you know at risk. So. And that's the problem, right? Is that it's this thread that you start to pull. And, and that's why I think there's so much resistance because people sense if I pull this one tiny little thread, the whole thing is going to start to unravel. And where do I, where, where does that leave me? Samuel, I don't know if this gives you any hope, but, uh, Carrie and I were in various places like that. Uh, at some point in our lives. Um, Indeed. <laughs> which is why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> because we were assholes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and at the same time, not, we, we were, but at the same time, like you say, like you say, Samuel, there are elements of beauty in all of that. You know, I mean, it, yes. p- people were involved. Humans were involved. The humanity, the humanitarianism, the service, the kindness, the goodness. The problem is, is that we isolate it to the Christian experience and we can't see that, you know, that Suchi Buddhists do the same thing that, you know, that animists, they believe in humanitarianism. They care. They want to help the people of Maui. It's not just a Christian thing. And so when we're isolated and we feel like we have to be the missionaries to carry this message to other people or else there's no hope for them. Um, that's where it becomes a problem. Yeah. Samuel, did you want to respond to that? Or No. Okay. I, I, I think that, too, one of the, and this is where I, where I struggle on this side of being on the side of the church, is that, and I'm not going to, I'm going to separate what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the people who are holding the power in the institution of the church. I think they want to, I think there's a lot that 
of that, that they want to hold on to power to your point, Samuel, earlier, whether they recognize that or not, they might not necessarily consciously be doing that. But so many of the people who, um, the, the lay workers, the lay people, the, and who, the missionaries who are really doing this out of a sense of real love for Jesus and for people, right? And even those people who, and I'm thinking of some dear friends of mine who have come out and um, are, are living life openly um, as gay or trans or lesbian. And, and um, they have family members who are doing so much harm to them by saying things like, you're, you know, so worried that they're going to hell. Oh, I'm praying for you, like all of that kind of stuff. And yet even that is done out of a sense of love. It's misguided love, but that makes it so hard because you know that they are, they, they really do love you. They, they love you and they don't want you to go to this, this construct called hell that they believe in, right? Um, and that makes this whole conversation that much messier and difficult because most of the people, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but many of them, are really acting from a place of what they understand love to be, you know, yeah. and that's hard. Yeah, I think it's really important to separate intention versus impact. You mm-hmm. might have had the pause again. Uh, the yes, difference between intention versus impact. Uh-huh. Yes. You can have great intentions and do absolutely terrible things. Mm-hmm. And your intentions do matter because if your intentions really are to be good and not to hold on to power, then when you discover that you have done harm, you go, oh, shit, I'm going to change my ways. I'm not going to do that anymore. Right. So you're in- so that's because we, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a person who has educated white people a lot, we've heard that message a lot. Your intentions don't matter. And I say, no, your intentions actually do matter. Because if you really, truly have love as your intention, then when you realize you've done such harm to the point that you are putting people in physical danger, you are you have blood on your hands, then you will change your ways. But if it's all about power, you're going to stay stuck in your... Uh, Carrie reminded me of of something, Samuel, I I just want to get your... uh... Uh, your thoughts on this and how, how you would think, how you would respond. Um, uh, a month ago, a woman who used to live here in Southern California and attended our church moved to, um, North Carolina, uh, a red state. And she, I hadn't heard from her in a, in a few years. And she called me because her pastor found out that her daughter, who was an adult and lives in another place is a lesbian. And in a, you know, in a relationship with another woman. And the pastor told her that she needed to tell her daughter that God hates that. You know, coming from your religious orientation and education and knowing that you also went to schools that are still heteronormative, both, both Wheaton and Fuller. How does that strike you? Well, obviously it pisses me off. Obviously it's, it's not the good thing to do. It's not the loving. Thing to do um, again so much of that just feels so counter to what I've learned uh, about God and so much uh, against what I learned about Jesus and so much against what I learned about the Bible um, that does not sound like that's coming from me um, it's not it's not a loving act again perhaps it may I can't judge intention maybe it is coming from a well-intentioned but very misguided place. But the act itself is is harmful. 
And I think that's something that we have to acknowledge. And again, going back to the intention versus impact. Um, if you do have good intention, Carrie, like you were saying, then that should allow you then to look at the negative impact of your behaviors and say like, hey, that was wrong. Exactly. So and that's how, you know, something I talk about with, with my clients every day as well. So coming from, you know, your, your background, if you had heard something like that, say when you were, you know, 14 years old, what would your response have been? Oh, I probably would have agreed with that whole part. That this, this isn't God's intention for your life. He wants the best for you, which means he wants you to, to be, you know, in a heterosexual like marriage and have kids or whatever. Yeah, definitely. And were you living in China at that time when you were 14? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So even in that, in that environment, that non-Christian basically, uh, society and culture, mm -hmm. that's how you would have thought. So, um, where I grew up, actually, it was a bit of an enclave, like a missionary enclave. And so actually my environment was actually very Christian and I didn't, didn't interact too much, frankly, with a lot of the Chinese locals, partly because like scheduling conflicts with a lot of the cram schools that a lot of the Chinese students went to. And partly because, um, you know, my parents wouldn't want us to accidentally say something about them being missionaries and then for us to get kicked out. So do you, do you feel like your parents are, are safe? I mean, there has been some change in China, but do you feel like they are secure functioning as missionaries there? So they're actually in Thailand. Oh, right they're now. in Thailand. Uh, they what? left China like weeks before they got kicked out. Um, yeah. Several other missionaries who stayed got detained after them. So they they're got detained. no longer welcome. So, uh, other missionaries. But my yeah. parents left before that happened. So that probably would have happened with your parents had they stayed in China? Probably. Hmm. Yeah, again, my parents, well-intentioned, they're putting themselves through that uh, those unsafe situations, sacrificing a lot. And also, I very much disagree with a lot of what they're doing. Uh, again, I do very much believe that they are engaging with others with a lot of love and compassion. And I, I do think that the people that they work with do very much see that. Um, and also. Uh, yeah, it's not an if or, if or that. It's not a black or white situation, no pun intended. Yeah. Like I like to say, there, there's Asian as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just black and white. That's true. That's true. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out. I, you know, I, I don't want to stop today without you saying something about your Asian ex-evangelical community. Mm -hmm. Say more. Sorry. Say more about it. Um, well, I think uh, a lot of Asian Americans as, as a whole, we find ourselves in this kind of awkward situation, right? Uh, we're not Black. We're not, you know, Indigenous. We haven't experienced the same kinds of uh, persecution and, and discrimination. And also we're very much not white and don't ex enjoy those same privileges. And many of us, um, you know, do experience uh, a lot of microaggressions on a daily basis. And if you look at history, there is a lot that uh, colonialism and white supremacy has done to affect a lot of Asian, Asian American people. And I think a lot of people uh, in, in my generation are, are seeing a lot of those things and 
are finding that the, the communities that they grew up in, but the Asian American church, and for me specifically, the Korean American church, are saying like, oh, this does not align with you know what I believe in, what I was taught. Um, and also, I don't really know where else to, to go with all of this. Because um, yeah. I can't you know, pretend that you know, I'm Black and you know, resonate with all of the experiences and the history that I didn't have there. Um, and also, you know, again, I don't enjoy some of the, the same languages for one person. Um, and so there, there is a particular kind of you know, deconstruction, decolonization, and that happens uh, in some of those spheres. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason why I've created this group is because I haven't seen a lot of spaces um, for Asian Americans to come together to talk about um, basic things. Do you feel like um, the group that you are growing um, is reflective of the um, of progressive, for lack of a better word, um, Christian or Christ-centered communities in other places, uh, say around the country? Are you aware of uh, those options for people that don't live near you? Um, I, I am aware that there are some of those kinds of things. Um, I am not aware. Uh, many that specifically target Asian American, uh, the Asian American. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, Jin S. Kim in Minneapolis, who is, I think, a Presbyterian pastor, but uh, those words don't describe him. Um, uh, he, I mean, uh, he influences me. I mean, he has over the the past few years has informed my thought. Um, as a liberationist, and yet he's a, you know, Korean American, um, and leads a very diverse congregation that here, uh, and I'm just going to cite him. Uh, his church is and has been for some years very diverse, but since 2016, and he kind of celebrates this. He says that we have fewer white people now, and he says, the upside of this is that they're not dependent on white money to carry out, yeah. you know, their work in their community. And of course, you being in the LA area, I'm sure you're familiar with Sung Chan Ra. I mean, he has, uh, kind of begun to, to work at Fuller and, and, and in, instead of just in Chicago now. But I'm not aware of like this huge, I, I know some Mennonites, you know, Sue Park Her. Uh, are you familiar with Sue Park Her? Uh, Okay, she's a Mennonite in the L.A. area. She and her husband, Hyung, um, who is Korean, she's Korean-American. They started a group called Reconciliation in the L.A. area, and it came out of, uh, and so it's been around a while, it came out of the Rodney King issue uh, when he was beaten and then the uprising took place, and a lot of Koreans, you know, um, they were in conflict with African Americans in right. LA, uh, as you know, you'll recall that story. And they, they, be so, uh, Sue and Hyun started, uh, with some other Korean Americans, this, this group to bring healing, uh, in the groups. And so Sue thinks, and she's a progressive, uh, Christian, but I don't know. I, I couldn't just rattle off a whole bunch of, uh, communities and I, and I'm just wondering if you're conscious that they might even exist at all. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I didn't really know too much. So I actually appreciate you bringing some of these things up to my attention. Reconciliation. 
um, reconciliation. Yeah, that's love great. To, I know. That. So as we finish up, because we're we're closing in on the hour, which went by so fast, I so appreciate you being here. Um, but I would love to know what if you if you could say if you could say one one or two sentences to those who are in a situation similar to yes. yours, you know, um, where they they long for the the community of a church, maybe they haven't found it yet. What sort of message of radical hope do you have for them? Um, it's a good question. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would say something along the lines of grief is a part of healing and grief mm-hmm. takes time and grief is an ongoing process, but it's something that can be done. Yeah. Maybe not the most like like sparkles and rainbows kind of a thing, but um, again, I don't think hope is often that. I agree. I think hope is dirty and messy and not sparkles and rainbows. It's gritty. It's gritty. So I love that. Thank you so much. That was I beautiful. needed to be reminded of that. So thank you both. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a pleasure it has been, Samuel. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. It was a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We just love okay. hearing your story and, you know, the stories of people who have similar but different experiences mm-hmm. of emergence and recovery and really these are you're describing hope because you're coming into a place of greater fulfillment in 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 living and being in the world in community with so many more people now so um you know peace be upon you yeah love it awesome thank you both so much thank you so much for being here today We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at GodIsNotAnAsshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.